thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the MusicCast podcast. Today, uh, Marissa, Maggie, and I are joined by Dr. John Kratis. Dr. Kratis, thanks for sitting down and chatting with us today. I'm happy to do it. Thank you, Kevin, for inviting me. Anytime. Um, could you give our listeners a little bit of a rundown, um, kind of like the elevator pitch of who you are and how you got into music and music education? Sure. Um, I started my professional career. I'm going to do this not in sequential order. Started my professional career uh, in the Buffalo, New York area. I taught at uh, private and public uh, schools for preschool through ninth grade. And um, then went for, uh, did my master's degree and undergraduate degree at Buffalo, uh, did a doctorate at Northwestern University. And I've taught uh, during my career at three universities, Bowling Green State, Case Western Reserve, and Michigan State University for a total of 33 years as a college professor. Um, now let me back up a little bit, be, bit before any of that, um, because given my uh, how I grew up, it would have been doubtful for anyone to predict that I would be um, the person I became. Uh, I loved music, but I didn't love the kind of music that was done in schools when I was growing up. Um, elementary school, sure, I loved choir, but after my, when my voice started to change and the discipline got really bad in the middle school choir, um, it just wasn't for me. So I picked up the guitar, started writing songs, I belonged in a whole series of um, rock bands. And so my experience with music took place entirely after school um, past seventh grade. And um, in some ways that's changed my perspective in terms of how I view what music education can possibly be. In other words, I think that there are a lot of people that grew up like I did who love music, but don't necessarily love um, the music that is offered to them uh, at their, uh, especially at the secondary level. Oh, okay, I wasn't sure. Kevin, you looked like you were going to say something. Okay, um, so this is a topic that we've come back to so many times um, on this podcast. I feel like we're running into more and more people who feel um, exactly the way you're describing. They they love music, but um, the kids don't always love what's being offered in um, the classroom setting, but the teachers having successfully made it through the music education system and the music um, collegiate system, obviously they do love the music that's offered in the classroom um, because mm. that's what they were successful at. So do you have any um, tips as to how to help teachers start to explore what else might be useful in order to engage more students successfully in a classroom setting? Sure. First, we need to understand how we got to where we are. And that takes a little bit of history. Um, back in the early 1800s, uh, conservatories spread across uh, Europe. And in the 1860s, they came to the United States. And those conservatories were designed to, um, to prepare musicians to perform in orchestras and opera companies, which were exploding in the 1800s. And so uh, classical music was a growth industry back then. And I've looked at the curriculum for uh, those early uh, conservatories in Europe. And I look at the typical music core curriculum at the collegiate level now in most schools, and they're pretty much the same. In other words, in 200 years, a paradigm that was established to prepare classical musicians 
for which there were lots of openings, um, has persisted and even continued on into 20th century teachers who are working with children who have so little in common with the classical uh, audiences back in the 1800s. And so it's kind of like how a fish doesn't know what water is because that's the only thing a fish knows. It's like, you know, if you go to any, if you transfer from any college to another college in the United States, pretty much you can be assured that you're going to have a primarily a large ensemble that you take every semester, primarily a private instruction, that you have a um, certain number of years of music theory, um, music history and literature that includes primarily European uh, music. And so that's a paradigm that has persisted and it's been um, very resistant to change. Now, there are some things that are happening at the college level that give me hope that there can be some change there. But, um, you know, I understand completely that a teacher, for example, uh, that graduates uh, in 2021, uh, from most colleges and universities is going to be very comfortable continuing on the kind of education that that person has um, thrived in as a younger person and also studied almost exclusively in college. So it's hard to say, okay, now, but how about um, starting a mariachi band? Or what about um, uh, computer composition? Um, and things like that, so, or even a course in uh, popular music history. So it's, again, it's hard to be able to break this paradigm that's existed for so long. And I do understand that some teachers are uh, hesitant to try something that they have never experienced themselves. Um, for many years, I taught a course uh, at uh, all three of the universities I taught at, on how to teach uh, at the secondary level, that'd be from sixth grade on through 12th grade, um, music that is uh, not ensemble music. Um, and that included everything from uh, composing, improvising, non-traditional ensembles, popular music, and so on. And almost none of the students who took my classes had ever had experienced a class like that themselves. So when, for example, someone is in a uh, a choral music methods class, learning to become a choral teacher. They've had many years of experience as being in choirs. So for example, the teacher of a uh, university teacher of a course like that doesn't need to start by explaining what, um, you know, what warmups are. I mean, this has just been a part of that person's life. And someone who's teaching something that uh, the students have never personally experienced themselves has a little bit different task. And so I oftentimes found myself teaching musicianship to my students, as well as the methods for teaching that musicianship. So for example, many of them um, had little experience in learning music by ear. So I broke them into bands and they had to uh, pick us, their band had to pick a song and play each instrument and uh, the, sing the voice vocal parts, um, which they learned entirely by ear not uh, by reading it off a page. And so things like that are, are different from the experience that most music teachers have when growing up. So it is difficult. Um, what I'm happy to report though, is that there are a lot of ways now in which um, students can begin to 
uh, pardon me, teachers can begin to learn how to do things that are a little bit of a stretch on the wild side that they probably didn't learn in college or never experienced themselves when they were younger. And so there are books that are out now about uh, popular music methods, um, teaching popular music ensembles, um, a fair amount in terms of the use of technology in the classroom and so on. So I think that one can't be an expert in everything. You know, you can't, sometimes it, music is so vast to think, well, yeah, but I don't know much about Irish folk music. <laughs> okay, I say you don't teach Irish folk music, but you can teach some things that are beyond your own personal experience. And, you know, uh, we musicians, we tend to um, believe that we have to be perfect at something before we dare to teach it to somebody else. You know, we have to have studied our instrument or our voice for many, many years before we turn around and teach somebody else that. And so that doesn't translate very easily if someone says, well, gosh, I'd like to teach a ukulele class and my seventh graders would love to learn ukulele, but I've never played the ukulele before. So sometimes we just have to uh, just take that step and try something that we think might be uh, for our students' benefit, even though it puts us in a place that's a little bit uncomfortable for a year or two. Do you think that paradigm shift in what we're teaching should start at the collegiate level or in <laughs> what we're teaching, you know, people who are going to be teachers or does that start in the classroom with k-12 educators uh i can answer your question by saying yes uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg thing which came first it's very hard um to uh, institute change at either level i can tell you it's extremely hard at the college level because so many faculty have a vested interest in their conservatory background. Uh, you know, they like to say, well, my teacher's 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 teacher was list, you know, and so it's very hard to to make those kind of changes. Um, it can be done. I think that more of the change is going to happen, though, um, from uh, from schools, from K through 12, because um, they're there an, an individual teacher can have um, uh, I know, for example, in, uh, uh, in, the, in Akron, Ohio, um, one teacher there was really into steel drums. And so she bought a set of steel drums and ended up buying a number of sets of steel drums and started a steel drum ensemble in her high school. Well, it became so popular that the other teachers in Akron all started steel drum ensembles. They used to have joint concerts and even competitions against each other and so on. Now, is steel drums the answer for everybody? No. But for this person who was um, particularly strongly interested in it, um, what Malcolm Gladwell would call a maven, uh, helped to spread uh, that idea of uh, steel drums to other schools. Uh, one teacher, a middle school teacher in uh, Columbus, Ohio, um, he had studied uh, African drumming and so turned his general music teacher teach uh, classes into African drumming classes. Well, this became so popular that the other middle school teachers in Columbus wanted to learn how that was done. And he would offer workshops to teach them. And they all started African drumming. So you can see, I, 
I don't believe that the future, the answer to the future is one thing, but I think that it begins with someone who has, a, you know, people who have a passion for something and the success of that something then attracts other people, attracts other people, attracts other people and starts to spread. Um, in a university, you've got all kinds of hindrances to that that make it much more difficult for someone to try something new and completely different. Um, everything from a strict number of uh, credit hours that are part of any one degree. And, you know, people have certain fiefdoms that they want to fight for. So I do think that there are many, many teachers out there that have the ability and the desire to try something new and maybe a little bit scary. But I think that that's really where our future is going to be. I think that sometimes as I listen and Marissa and I, when we were at the same school, had a lot of conversations about this. We started a guitar class. We started some more modern media mm -hmm. classes. And I think one of they've been very successful with the students. But one of the things that always was kind of a fear of some of our colleagues was, are we going to pull from the kids that take band, orchestra and choir? Um, are we going to pull those numbers away? because students are interested in other things. And it starts to make me wonder as I hear you speak, whether or not people identify themselves as a music educator or identify themselves as a band director or an orchestra director or choir director, because a lot of this um, to me is stuff that I find interesting and try and have happen, but it doesn't always cross into my band ensemble. It happens in my other courses oh, yeah. and how we offer the other things is that, do you think there's anything to how people identify themselves? If more traditionally, I feel like teachers identify them as directors of ensembles, not music educators. Yeah, uh, that, and that's a problem. You know, our language um, interferes with our desires sometimes. And I think that that's a problem, the, the use of the word director. Uh, you know, I, I, for 33 years, I was talking to music teachers all the time and I, found myself never using the word director. You would be a band teacher, an orchestra teacher, a choir teacher. A director directs other people and then that influences what, how that person sees his or her job. Um, a teacher has a different kind of a job though. And I do believe that that person on a podium or in front with a baton or whatever, um, uh, does have a job as a teacher. It's not just, a, it's not to put on shows. And you know that, it's not to put on shows. It's not for that Friday evening uh, thing that we're going to be doing for the parents. Um, it's for the students that are in front of us. And, the, and I think that it begins by um, having people seeing themselves as teachers, not directors. Now, a good deal of the problem there stems from um, our college educations. And that is that many schools, if they're large enough, like Michigan State, um, had... Uh, tracks. So if you play trombone, I'm turning you into a general, uh, into a uh, band teacher. I don't care if you want to work with little kids, you're going to be a band teacher because you play trombone. And uh, when I came to Michigan State, they had three very strict tracks set up so that you, the instrument or voice that you came in with determined exactly the kind of teacher you're going to be almost down to every single course you would be taking for uh, at that point, five years. Um, in 2000, uh, when I was chair, uh, we changed that completely. And it was a big program. We had 180 undergraduate music ed majors there, um, but we got rid of all the tracks and instead turned it over to the students. What is it that you wanna study? 
and that had a lot of resistance from some folks um, who told us that our students graduating from their program would never get jobs. And instead, we had 100% placement at a big school, which was amazing. So I think that part of the problem has to do with the education that's offered to most music teachers, which tends to get them to think in terms of boxes. So that, for example, that if someone studies as a band teacher and whoops, we don't have enough students for band, so I've got to offer a guitar class too. Ugh, I guess I must've failed as a teacher. You know, that's not it at all. It's that uh, a person who um, enjoys and excels at um, uh, teaching in a band setting um, can also teach uh, guitar, can also teach music composition, can also teach improvisation. And I think we need to get out of our boxes, but universities that track students are not doing us any favors. Um, I think this will tie in nicely. Um, as we were preparing to do the podcast, you mentioned that your article in MEJ from 2007, Music Education at the Tipping Point, is one of the most cited articles or the most cited article of all time from that From that journal, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, it was interesting. When it, when it came out, I got a lot of emails. And, um, uh, <laughs> and a fair number of people... Um, quit um, NAFME as a result of that article because it was the first one really that um, kind of challenged and asked people to consider are we, is what it is that we've been devoting ourselves to necessarily the right thing. And what's interesting about that uh, article is that I wrote it um, in, in one day, actually in one evening. I was going to be giving a presentation at a conference in Vancouver, and I had a few notes written on a sheet of paper. And I thought, well, I, I wanna flesh this out a little bit. So I pulled out my laptop and I worked all night long. And what, fin what came out was something that's twice as long as the article that you read. Uh, and so basically when I had to publish, what I had to do was to um, cut it in half and cut a lot of the stuff out. So that one was very quick. Um, I wrote and uh, published another article for Music Educators Journal in 2019. That one took me um, uh, about 11 years to write. <laughs> so, so I have no standard way of sitting down and coming up with stuff. Um, but I think that, yeah, tipping point, basically the point that what I was trying to convey there is that um, uh, people's experience with music um, has changed uh, radically, um, but schools, uh, the way that students were being taught and the kinds of music and music skills that they were learning and so on hadn't changed in accordance with that. And that the difference between in-school music and out-of-school music was growing larger and larger and larger in that we needed to bridge this gap for music to have um, a, a steady future. And I also said, mentioned a little bit, which I get more into in uh, this 19 uh, or 2019 article, um, uh, get a little bit in, into the history that uh, throughout American music education's history, it's always reflected uh, the kinds of things that people were doing with music outside of school. So for example, in early music, uh, early music education in schools, uh, it was all about group singing and it was about uh, learning to read music 
because the ways people would use music outside of school, you know, in, a, in an era before recorded music or and uh, orchestras and traveling bands and so on, um, was uh, was to sing in religious services and to sing from uh, from uh, from books. And so sing, group singing and learning to read music was something that was very important to that era. So if we kind of translate that up to our present day, um, we can see that there are certain ways that people interact with music outside of school. And that might be some good way for us to be able to decide what are some of the important things that we might not be emphasizing very much, but we could be teaching inside of schools. Anyway, I'm trying not to dominate the, the conversation. Yeah, Kevin, do you have anything? Kev, go, because yeah. I was going to switch. I was going to switch gears. Um, so one of the things that we've spoken to a decent amount, and we're in in the school that we had been in, we're kind of at this this point of starting to do um, a career pathways idea where they're right, trying yeah. to inform students of what they might want to do as a career. And one of I, I read one of uh, the pieces that you wrote about semi-professionalism or aspiring musician or amateurism. Right. And I think that um, one of the things that I find maybe leery about career pathways, or I'm curious to get your take on is, I think a great deal of the benefit of music from society or what people find interest in it is not necessarily a career path. Um, right. And how do you, so how do, how do we balance preparing these students for things like a music education or a music technology career, but then at the same time, maybe reevaluate what we, we hold value in for music yeah. on a societal level? Yeah, that's a valid question. Um, and I've, I've got a good answer to you. <laughs> uh, the problem is that there aren't the jobs. They, they simply don't exist. Uh, in the 2010 uh, US census, uh, they reported that um, only one out of a thousand American adults between the age of 25 and 65 made a living performing music. One out of a thousand. So if you teach in a fairly large school that has 3,000 students in it, three of the people going to that school may become musicians. But 2,997 of them are not, will not. So here's, you know, in, in the article you're referring to has to do with, with amateurism. Um, I think that if we say that what we, what we should be doing with music is to prepare people to be able to make a living at it, I think that we're barking up the wrong tree because the jobs simply aren't there. We may be preparing them for something that they're not gonna be able to do um, effectively. And it's a shame, I think, that so many colleges and universities uh, are preparing music performance students who have probably no chance at being able to perform in an orchestra or a band or sing in a professional choir. Um, you know, I, in, one of the sidebars in my amateurism article looked at um, Juilliard and found that 10 years after graduation, um, more than half of the people who played orchestral instruments um, did not perform in an orchestra or band professionally. And that's Juilliard, you know? So I think that realistically, 
we need to um, kind of shift gears a little bit. So what I did in that article was uh, to look back at American history, um, back to the 1930s. And in the 1930s, um, music education was um, quite a bit different than it is today, but it did have something that I caught a hold of that I thought was very important for the future, for our future. And that is that they were most interested in being able to prepare people who could um, interact musically with each other and with society and so on after they left school, you know, at home by themselves, on summer vacations, on weekends, and years after they graduate. And so if we, if we think about that, and so developing amateurism in uh, student musicians is not a way of saying, I give up, you're not gonna make it. Um, but it is something to say, look, it probably is unrealistic that you're going to be getting a job with a major symphony orchestra if you play in my orchestra, but hey, you know what? You can get together with friends and you can um, either invent your own music you can learn some cover music, you can be a string quartet, or you can be any kind of uh, organization that you wanna be. Um, some of the early orchestras in the United States, school orchestras in the United States, were just a you all come kind of orchestra. They didn't have standard orchestra uh, instrumentation. It was just whoever wanted to be in the orchestra, I don't care if you play bells or a drum set, you're in the orchestra. And then teacher used to just, and students used to just arrange the music for whoever showed up. So I think that, you know, that sometimes our ways of trying to prepare people in a more professional way is hindering our ability to be able to attract people who, hey, I'm in 10th grade, I never played trumpet before, but you know, it might be kind of cool to learn to play trumpet. Uh, you can't be a part of my ensemble because you know you're going to drag us down. We're not going to get those high ratings anymore. So on, so on. So I think that you know if we start to think about well, what would kids who play a trumpet do when they're 25? Okay, they're probably not going to be in a professional band or orchestra. Well, what could they do? Well, they could get together with their friends. They could put together uh, I don't know a salsa band they could, uh, or some kind of popular music band and play weddings or dances or clubs, you know? And so there's a lot of things that people can do with their music outside of uh, school settings without a teacher, without 50 other people around them, um, without someone handing them the music and telling them when they're gonna play and when they're good enough. And I think that if we started to teach people how to rely on themselves as musicians, rather than to rely on the teacher as a musician, I think we'd be preparing people who would not put their instruments away once they graduate. And um, kind of, there was a, a footnote I put in an article of mine about a study that was done to look at the ways that children practiced while learning um, a band instrument. And did the ways that they practice have anything to do with whether they chose to stay in band or not? So this person doing conducting the study started with uh, sixth graders and followed them for uh, five or six years and then wrote up his article, but kept following them uh, until two years out of college. And two years out of college, starting with 157 sixth graders, only seven were still playing the instrument that they'd played in school. Now, I don't think that that means band instruments or orchestra instruments are passe. 
I just think that they don't know what to do. They haven't been taught to be independent musicians and they don't have that support system around them that hands them music, tells them to do things in a certain way at a certain time. So if we'd had more, for example, breaking down a large ensemble into chamber music, ah, well, you can get together with some friends and do chamber music on your own, but that doesn't happen all that often because we're so tied to this paradigm of, uh, of large ensembles. And uh, I'm not saying that they're bad and I think they've been great music education for all of the generations of people that have loved them. But I think we need to also start to think about what are some other possibilities that we may be ignoring. I think that's um, very profound in a lot of ways to hear you say the kids need to start relying on themselves as musicians instead of the teacher. And I guess that's a lot of what teachers are trying to do, but I don't know the way you, the way it was stated just kind of sat with me like, wow, kids really aren't seeing themselves in this way. Um, so I just wanted to, I guess, reiterate that I very much enjoy that point. But um, I wanted to kind of dovetail as well over to the metaphor of, um, I always have trouble saying this, McDonaldization. Um, <laughs> because you, you were talking about large ensembles um, and how we're very tied to that idea. And I think um, one of the things that kind of struck me from this article I was reading is that in music, we are um, so so tied as teachers to quantity, the number of students in front of us, and that is largely what drives advocacy for um, the community and our administration. Um, but the quote that I pulled from the article um, was that, it's notable that high school calculus teachers or world history teachers do not aspire to teach 60 or more students in a class as a measure of their worth. And that, that struck me because as someone who taught orchestra and um, you know, in various places, I at times would have close to 200 kids in front of me and it felt, felt good. And that quote really made me rethink my priorities. Um, so I was wondering if you could just speak to that article and a little bit about this quality versus quantity um, and this McDonald's metaphor. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, by, and by the way, don't feel guilty about when you had those 200 students in front of you. <laughs> You must have been providing some something really special. Uh, when I first started teaching at uh, at a middle school, um, actually it was a junior high school, uh, my choir had twelve students, and in my second year we had one hundred and twenty. And I thought, wow, what a great teacher I am. Now, uh, with McDonaldization, uh, that was a book uh, written in nineteen ninety three by a sociologist named George Ritzer. And his book was uh, The McDonaldization of Society. Um, and what it did was to apply the, uh, the ways that Ray Kroc used to guide McDonald's. He was like their leading light when it first started. And um, it's been applied to education, to religion, to government, and so on. And so I applied it to music education. And what you're talking about is a characteristic that um, Ritzer called calculability, in which um, we use numbers to substitute for quality. So <clears throat> when McDonald's first came out, and I'm sure this predates when all of you first encountered Mc McDonald's, um, they used to post on uh, signs outside uh, of the restaurant how many they had sold, 
how many millions of hamburgers they sold. And then it turned into how many billions of hamburgers they sold. And now I think they just say billions and billions. Um, but look what that says. They're not advertising, wow, do we have good hamburgers? They're saying, we have sold a lot of hamburgers and they're letting you assume that means they must be good, right? Um, but uh, there was a documentary made um, uh, called Supersize Me, uh, in which the filmmaker uh, ate three meals a day at McDonald's and over a month uh, gained 25 pounds. Uh, he lost uh, skin tone, and his sex drive, used to vomit regularly and so on, uh, just to go, just to show that not just because they sell a lot of hamburgers are they necessarily good for you. Um, and so uh, this McDonaldization in which uh, characteristics like efficiency, calculability, predictability, control, determine what's done in McDonald's has also been adapted by music educators. So for example, predictability, if you go to a McDonald's anywhere in the United States and order a Big Mac, you want it to taste the same as the last Big Mac that you had. Um, but suppose you were teaching in, or suppose you had a McDonald's in New Orleans where people are really hot for remoulade sauce. If you were down there you and owned one, you could not put remoulade sauce on a hamburger and sell it at McDonald's. McDonald's wouldn't allow you to. It has to be the same everywhere. And if you look at what we have, I mean, everything from the instrumentation of concert band to, um, or, or orchestras, to um, a lot of districts have uh, a strict list of pieces that you can perform for contests and festivals and so on. Um, there's the predictability and control of some of the elementary um, general music method ways of learning uh, music literacy. So for example, Orff and Kodai and Gordon's learning theory and so on. And so the characteristics of efficiency, calculability, predictability, and control are good when applied to machines and computers, but not necessarily good when applied to people. Because what happens then is that it take, it squeezes out all the creativity that could be used to actually improve the product in the first place. So when we have a standard curriculum and every teacher is expected to teach the same thing in the same way, uh-oh, maybe one teacher is really good at doing this one thing, like the teacher I explained who started the Seal Drum Band in Akron, Ohio, uh, is good at doing one thing, and maybe that makes all the difference in the world. So necessarily some things that seem as though they're going to be um, to our advantage might be to our disadvantage. Um, and I, and I, I don't want to say this about large ensembles because it seems as though I, I'm repeating something I, and I do not disagree with or dislike large ensembles whatsoever. But sometimes our success in that realm has blinded us to the possibilities of being able to attract actually more students doing other different kinds of things. So for example, the orchestra teacher that I knew in Michigan who decided, well, as a string teacher, I'm also uh, can teach guitar. And so she started guitar classes 
And I convinced her to try to uh, have the second semester of guitar class be a songwriting class, hugely successful. She didn't have students leaving her orchestra to, to, to join this, but what she did was she ended up, as many string teachers have, she used to have to travel from school to school to school in order to put together a job. She was able to stay in one school and be the string teacher for that school, but just redefine what a string teacher could be to include um, guitar, songwriting, as well as orchestra. So, yeah, so, yeah, McDonaldization tends to uh, squeeze out all the things that make us each special and creative and unique. And it seems to me that, especially music, because it's such an art and it's something that people love so dearly, um, we probably shouldn't be in, in pushing that on them all that much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure you guys looked like you were going to say something. Um, so we, we've kind of hit our time limit, but um, if people want to find more information on you, your work, um, anything kind of related to these subjects, where, where can they turn? Okay, there is a website called uh, researchgate.com. Um, researchgate is like one word. And then just type in my name, John Kratis. Uh, and uh, you'll see all the stuff that I've published. And I'm real excited about something I've got coming out in probably in December in uh, the Oxford Handbook for the Pedagogy of um, Music Composition. Um, and I've got the first chapter in there. And it's uh, a chapter titled The Music No One Has Heard Yet. And it's all about um, what a special thing it is in that we, as music teachers, tend to spend all of our time teaching our students cover songs. That is music that already exists, rather than teaching them to make the music that no one has heard yet. So I'm kind of pumped about that. Uh, but that's going to, that book would probably cost about $150. So you'll see that chapter of showing up on ResearchGate. <laughs> that's awesome. And I'll link, um... I'll, I'll put a whole bunch of links on um, your bio when we put this up on the website. And um, I'll also just plug some F-flat materials as well at the end here. There's lots on the F-flat books website for songwriting if you're really interested in this topic. And um, they are coming out with a new book about popular music and all kinds of stuff. So um, if you're listening to this and you want a starting point for some of those resources, F-flat books has a ton of them out um, right now. So Yes, they do. Thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time and um, being flexible <laughs> with all of the time moving and that kind of stuff. So thank you so Great. much. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks so much.